God is one of those questions that Christians and non-believers alike ask. And it's a question that sometimes turn people away from you. But we want to tackle it today. We need to get some biblical inputs into our hearts so that we can overcome suffering in our lives, the question of suffering that we observe too. And so God help us, Lord. It is, it is still a mystery, I know. But there is something that we want to pray you will deposit into our hearts that will enable us to be overcomers in Jesus' name. And so I pray for each one of us, God, that you would touch our hearts, not just this Sunday, but the following three as well as we grapple with this topic. I pray for my brother Wayne, Lord, that you would fill him with the Holy Spirit, enable him to preach the word that is apt for this season, that will, that will be life and that will be spirit to us. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's a real joy again to be back uh, in, in the pulpit this morning and bringing God's word to you. My own journey in regard to this subject of risk, suffering, and evil really goes back to my days in Chad as a missionary. And we had landed in what was, one of the, was then one of the most poorest countries in the world in the mid-90s. It was rife with corruption, militarily were unpaid, and there was a high level of street crime. And I remember just in those first few weeks being disorientated, even during our orientation. And I was called upon around the sixth week or so to take one of our four-wheel drives to the south of the country because there'd been an accident. Now, I hadn't really driven a four-wheel drive at that stage yet in, in the desert conditions, but this was part of orientation and I needed to, to do it. And what had happened was some of the pastors from the capital, Jemena, had traveled south for a, a conference to meet other pastors, and the Hilux, Toyota Hilux, was involved in a head-on collision. And if you know anything about people, how they travel in, in the desert conditions, they pile up on the back of the truck there's around 25 people involved in this accident. Several of them had died straight on the spot. So I was asked to play ambulance man, take a Toyota Hilux South. It was about an eight-hour drive. And it's on rough roads, no, no tarmac road. It's just a, a laterite road, red road, and you're trying to miss the potholes, trying to avoid an accident yourself. When I got there, my, I was assigned to try and get two people back to the capital for medical help. One, uh, well two, both of them were pastors, and there was a nurse down in the south there who put up drips for them in the back of the vehicle I was driving, and I had a co-worker with me, uh, Liz. So she stayed in the back to attend to the, the two wounded, and I drove as carefully as I could, but as speedily as I could back to the capital. When we got back to the capital, 
We managed to drop one of them at the main hospital. It's a very basic hospital, and there's not a lot they could do for him. But the other pastor had died on the journey. So then it was up to us, myself and my co-worker, to take this pastor, find his church, find his family, and break the news. That was about 3 o'clock in the morning. So we took took this body back, lay it out in the church, and then had to go and find the pastor's wife and children. And that was my first experience in living in Chad of dealing with death head-on, dealing with suffering, and asking, why would a good God allow this to happen to good people, those whom he loved, those who loved him? And that started this anguish within me, wrestling. And it didn't stop there, because we saw a lot of suffering in Chad. We experienced a lot of suffering over those years. And even today, we just heard of another bomb blast in the capital. Just yards from where we lived, a suicide bomb went off, killing many in the, cap- in the marketplace. And so suffering still, can, still continues today. The book this series is based on, If God is Good, is Al- Randy Alcorn describes his own suffering, uh, even from when he was a teenager, His best friend, Greg, died in a horrible accident. He himself has been wrestling with a crippling disease for the past 25 years. His book took two years to research. He's interviewed Holocaust survivors. He's interviewed uh, people who have gone through extreme suffering and extreme evil. And even atheists, he's, he's interviewed many of those. So as we go through this series... Let's not let our feelings, real as they are, invalidate our need to hear Scripture and to hear the truth of God's Word. Remember that the path to our heart travels through our mind, so truth matters. And to touch us at the heart and to keep touching us over the days and weeks ahead, it has to travel through our mind. I think it's true to say that all of us have suffered. Many of us are suffering right now. Some of us have lost loved ones. And we're wondering, what does God have to say on this subject? What does God have to say to me this morning? So as you deal with your own suffering, it's real, real as it is. By all means, speak to a friend speak to a pastor, speak to one of the elders, get help, but do not ignore God's revealed truth about evil and suffering. So the first 10 chapters of this book deal with two subjects primarily, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, try and unpack a little bit. It's understanding the problem of evil and suffering and its origins, nature, and consequences. Well, we don't need to go very far do we, to see people are suffering. It doesn't matter. Even if we're not suffering personally, we just have to look around us. Uh, again, this is not a very clear picture, but this is a refugee camp on the border of Chad and Sudan. And there was ethnic cleansing going on. I was explaining, explaining a little bit last week to the men's group. And in this conflict in the 90s, an estimated 290,000 people died. This is the beginnings of a refugee camp. 
Women were raped, children were dying. And you look at the tsunami, 2004, an estimated 280,000 people died. You think of Nepal earlier this year, massive earthquake, earthquake 7.9 magnitude, claimed thousands of lives, thousands and thousands made homeless. Malaria claims more than 2 million lives every year. Most of those are children in Africa. And you know, sometimes when we hear those statistics, they don't affect our heart. They're just too big. But it's not until you see people close up and you see their eyes, and their eyes start to tell you a story, don't they? And it affects your heart. And you see the bones and the rags and, and the, the experience they're going through. It's only then that compassion starts to flow. So listen, suffering will come. And we owe it to ourselves. And we owe it to God. In, in, in one sense, to prepare for it the best we can. And many of the books address the, the subject of evil and suffering head-on. Many of those books. And many of the writers ask the same questions that we've been asking. Now, why doesn't God just rid the universe of evil? Why not? Habakkuk asked those questions. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you. Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Book of Psalms, it brims with uh, honest questions about evil and, and suffering. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I say to my rock, Psalm 42, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Psalm 44, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, they raise the problem of evil and, and, and suffering and the apparent this, this randomness of life. You look at the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember in chapter 50, Joseph says, you meant it for harm, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had a hard time. You think of Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Yes, God saved him. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all thrown into the furnace. God saved them. But what about Stephen? In the book of Acts, stoned to death. What about Paul? His sufferings, 2 Corinthians 11. He had been imprisoned, imprisoned frequently. He had been flogged severely. He had been exposed to death again and again. He was pelted with stones. Three times, he says, he was shipwrecked. He was in danger from rivers and bandits and so on. See, there is so much that we can learn from these Bible characters and these Bible stories. God doesn't push the issue away. He wants us to see it and deal with it.
and, and try to understand and grasp. So by including these stories, I believe God is inviting us to question, just like psalmist did, to ask those questions. God invites our cries. And I think that is truly wonderful. God wants us to voice our concerns. However, I think that there's a catch. There's a condition. And that condition is we must be willing and prepared to listen to his response. That's the condition. In September 1992 was when Miriam and I went to Bible College in London. That first week, as we started, a missionary family had just been sent out. They'd been studying for two years at All Nations Christian College. And they were on their way to Kathmandu in Nepal, and their plane crashed into the mountains. No survivors. Andrew Wilkins was age 38. His wife, Helen, who was pregnant, age 36. Their three children, and then, uh, it was Hannah, age 10, Naomi, eight, and Simeon, six, all killed. And I remember our Hebrew lecturer that first week leading the morning prayers. And I hadn't experienced anything like it before because he cried out to God. He really cried out to God. Why, 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 O oh Lord? How could you let there is righteous people of die. And he really questioned God and real tears as he led the student body. Why do the wicked go unpunished? How could you allow this to happen? Lord, were you sleeping? And he asked those questions. It allowed the other students to express their grief also. And the lecturers then helped us work through our grief by using the scriptures. It wasn't done in a day. It was over a period of time. Helping us to see how God could justify in one sense what had taken place. So, what is evil? Yes, that's the question I want to ask. And how does it suffer from, or how does it differ from suffering? Well, the problem of evil lies at the crux or the core, if you like, of the biblical account. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the unfolding drama of redemption. That's what I'm trying to get at. Adam and Eve's sin caused God to bring judgment, whilst at the same time setting in motion our redemption. So God calls his people to embrace Can you help me with the PowerPoint at the back, please? Yes. Well, God calls his people to embrace good <clears throat> and reject evil. And you'll see the, from those Bible verses from Amos, Romans, and 1 Peter, John 11 on the screen. And to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good. So all these passages presume we know the difference between good and evil. So what is evil? Evil, in essence, says Randy Alcorn, refuses to accept God as God and puts someone or something else 
in his place. Quite like that definition of evil. You see, most people today understand evil as anything that harms others. The more harm done, the more evil it is, or the more evil that action. However, the Bible uses the term evil to describe anything that violates, that breaches, that uh, disregards God's moral, righteous, good will. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that was the first human evil, the consequence was suffering. Now, let me put my teaching hat on for a little while rather than my preaching hat. Randy Alcorn distinguishes between two types of evil. First one is primary evil, the immoral things we do. And the second one is the consequences, it's the secondary evil, it's the consequences we suffer as a result of primary evil. So disobeying God was the original evil. From that sin came the consequence of suffering. Now, Scripture sometimes talks about calamities, disasters, and tragic events as evil, as evils. So sometimes we see both the primary and secondary evils in the same context, explaining how God uses secondary evils as judgments that may produce ultimate good. So let me try and give you an example of that. It's from Jeremiah 11, verse 17. And he uses the same uh, Hebrew word, evil. The Hebrew word for evil is ra, in both the primary sense and the secondary sense. So let me look at this uh, passage with you. It says, The Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil, which is ra, against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. So that's your new American Standard Version, how it puts it. Now you look at your NIV, you look at your ESV, and you'll see other versions have taken that first word evil and translated it as disaster or calamity. So the translators are correct in doing this because they recognize that the evil God brings is a consequence It's a judgment upon Israel's actions. It's not a moral evil as the evil committed by Israel. You see, God is righteous and is just in bringing this disaster. For good reason. You know, most translators normally render ra as evil when used of people disobeying God, but disaster or calamity when used of God bringing judgment on sinful people. Are you with me so far? Yes? It's not easy sometimes to grasp, is it? You know, it's, it's like, you know, the surgeon inflicts suffering, if you like, on the patient. And a parent disciplines their children. But they do good, don't they? Not evil. And remember, Hebrews um, 12, verse 6 tells us God does discipline those he loves. So God can permit and even bring suffering upon his children without being morally evil. God 
hates moral evil. And he, he is committed to ultimately destroying it. Yet for now, he allows evil and he allows suffering and can use them for his good purpose. Well, what are some of the responses to the problem of evil and suffering? Jeremy was very bitter towards God. This is a story from Randy Alcorn's book. Because both his parents had been born with cerebral palsy. And he broke his father's heart when he told his father at a young age he would never, ever worship a God who had done this to his parents. Well, Jeremy's life as he grew up became a train wreck. He was in and out of uh, rehabilitation centers for alcohol, over abuse, drug abuse. He's had two separations from his wife, who, by the way, had been praying for him for 27 years. For 27 years. Well, one day he was arrested for drink driving, and he just broke down. And he gave his life to Christ. After nearly 30 30 years, three decades, of pain in her marriage, Sarah, his wife, wrote these words. I'm here to tell you, I would not have the relationship with God that I have if I had not suffered deeply. God revealed treasures to me that can only be found, I believe, in the darkness. Now, some of you know that truth. I know that. But Sarah comes, from, comes to the problem of evil from a distinct Christian worldview. And there are many others. I don't have time to go into those this morning. If you want to delve into them, then I suggest you download or buy the book. But Randy Alcorn lists six worldviews. First one, there's no evil and suffering. There's no God. God has limited goodness. God has limited power. God has limited knowledge. And then the Christian worldview, number six. God is all good, all powerful, and is all knowing. He hates evil and will ultimately judge evildoers and remove evil and suffering after accomplishing a greater eternal good. Now, I don't know about you, but the Christian worldview is increasingly unpopular. I don't know about here, but I can say. In the West, particularly in Europe, it's becoming more and more unpopular. But I'm convinced that the Christian worldview, having looked at these worldviews, deals is the only one that really deals adequately the whole issue of evil and suffering. And there's not only an explanation, but there is a hope for the future. God has revealed what he will do, how he will conquer evil and suffering in the end. He's revealed his plan to us. Let's move on. Let's talk about understanding evil, its origins, its nature and consequences. Remember in Genesis 1 verse 31, all that God created he called very good, yes? Yes? So, sometimes you hear people saying that God created Satan. That's wrong thinking. God created everything. It was good. 
God created Lucifer and God created the angels, but they chose to disobey God. It was they who chose to do evil. So evil entered the universe through Satan and those fallen angels. And Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Christ also referred to him as the evil one and the prince of this world. So God foreknew that the angels would rebel. So the rebellion did not surprise him. Though demons, yes, real as they are, they hate us, and they hate God, and they inflict suffering on us whilst they can, in the end, we will see it is God. God will have used them somehow and in some way to bring glory to himself and for our own transformation. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us when evil came into being. Or it tells us when it came, not how. And I, I wrestled with this subject, but one of these verses, Deuteronomy 29, 29, says the secret, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So for some unknown reason... God has chosen to remain silent on this question. And Randy Alcorn says, if evil is irrational, how can its point of origin be rationally explained? I think that's a very good point. He goes on to say, every parent of small children knows that giving no explanation is sometimes better than a partial explanation that misleads little minds. Perhaps then we should interpret God's silence about the origin of evil not as a refusal to explain, but as a kindness. Maybe his explanation would, given our limitations, lead us to greater misunderstanding or even heresy. So if evil is irrational... How can its point of origin be rationally explained? I think that's a good point. Remember, Jesus said, uh, the Lord said to the serpent, Cursed are you, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is after Adam and Eve sinned, God has pronounced judgment. Who is he? It's the woman's offspring. Who is your head? It's Satan. So Eve's descendant would crush the head of the serpent himself. So from the beginning, we see God planned that his son, the Lord Jesus, should deal the death blow to Satan, to evil, and to suffering. One John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So God has both the power and the right to destroy Satan and his demons today. But he chooses not to. 
He doesn't choose. He, he's patient. He's loving. He's gracious. He wants to show us those attributes. I'm thinking of what about humanity's evil and suffering it has caused. You look at the book of Judges. You see this cycle, don't you, of sin. It overflows with terrible stories. People keep sinning, and God keeps judging them. He sends consequences, you know, and in their desperation, they cry out, and then he delivers them again. They become self-satisfied, and, and they pursue evil again. And this cycle goes on and on. But the last verse of the book of Judges says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think that is a very key passage for us. Because it is God who determines what is right, not us. We can't understand evil without understanding the nature of God. There are consequences to sin. God is holy, and therefore, he cannot overlook sin. It has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. And that's why the sacrificial system came into place in the Old Testament. Then Hebrews 10 tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God's standards are so high that only a perfect sacrifice is possible. Only a perfect sacrifice can atone for sin. And that's why Christ went to the cross. So the fall did not end God's plan for humanity. God would ultimately use evil to accomplish the greater end of redemption in Christ. Let me just talk a little bit about this inherited sin and our sin nature. In 1750, you know this man on the screen? Age 25, John Newton. He commanded an, an English slave ship. He anchored off the African coast and he bought slaves. He traded in slaves. And Newton's men took these terrified slaves, took them on board, as many as 600 at a time, and he would put two in a two-foot cage, side by side, like fire, fire logs all lined up. 600 of them, with no toilet, no sanitary conditions, hot, sweaty. And you can imagine the stench. It would have been incredible. Newton's ships not only had chains, but they had handcuffs and had neck collars, screw, these thumb screws for torture. And Newton would allow his men to rape the women as he himself did. As a young man, his ship uh, nearly sank and he gave his life to Christ. But his life didn't change instantly. He kept doing these great atrocities and these evils. It's only as time went on, he fully dedicated his life to Christ. <clears throat> and for the last half of his life, he pastored a church in London. 
uh, where he taught the scriptures, he preached the gospel, and he eventually spoke out against slave trade. At age 82, on his deathbed, his memory almost gone, totally blind, he said these two things. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner. Two, and that Christ is a great saviour. Well, Newton, as you know, wrote many hymns, many songs, most famous one being Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not a soul, as some modern translations say, but a wretch. He realized what a wretch he was. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Newton clearly saw the evil in himself. And I think we have to ask, are we really any different to John Newton? To view evil accurately, we must see it above all as an outrageous offense to God. When we, I'm going to say this, when we hurt others, we become aware of our own sin. It's reflected back to us in a, like a mirror, isn't it? But, how, you know, we don't see God face to face. And so sometimes we don't realize just how much our sin hurts him. Again, I was thinking about David and Bathsheba. David, in Psalm 51, I would encourage you to read it. He said, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I think here David put his finger on the pulse. He knows his sin has hurt others. He's agonized over his sin and his betrayal of Uriah. But he's recognizing, above all, he sinned against God. So often, you know, we limit our sorrow, we limit our sin to the, to the, um, what we've, the hurt we've caused others. Again, do, you, do you, you recognize this person on the screen? This is Billy Graham's grandson, Chilian uh, Chivitian. Now, I'm not judging, so please, I just want to try and illustrate a little bit. But just in last month, uh, Chilean resigned from uh, his pastorate in Coral Ridge Presbyterian at a high-profile church in South Florida. He admitted to an affair. And so he released the following statement to the press, to the Washington Post. Let me read it to you. I resigned from my position at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church today due to ongoing marital issues. As many of you know, I returned from a trip a few months back and discovered that my wife was having an affair. Heartbroken and devastated, I informed our church leadership and requested a sabbatical to focus exclusively on my marriage and family. As her affair continued, we separated. Sadly and embarrassingly, I subsequently sought comfort in a friend and developed an inappropriate relationship myself. 
Last week, I was approached by our church leaders, and they asked me about my own affair. I admitted to it, and it was decided the best course of action would be for me to resign. Both my wife and I are heartbroken over our actions, and we ask you to pray for us and our family that God would give us the grace we need to weather this heart-wrenching storm. We are amazingly grateful for the team of men and women who are committed to walking this difficult path with us. Please pray for the healing of deep wounds, and we kindly ask you that you respect our privacy. Nothing's wrong in the statement. But you see, pastors who commit adultery often do feel profoundly the consequences of their evil and their actions. Um, They see the faces of their wives, their congregations, and their families. And they do, they feel deep sorrow. I'm sure they do, as we do when we sin. But sometimes... And I'm not saying this is true of Tillian, but sometimes they and sometimes we don't see that our primary sin is against God. That's the point I want to make. And when we fail to see that we have sinned against God, then no matter how much we feel about what we've done to others, we will always try to minimize our sin. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? Let me just finish. I know time has gone, but I want to talk a little bit about natural disasters. You know, many people blame God for all the natural disasters around the world. The tsunamis, the volcanoes that erupt, the rivers that flood. And you have to very simply ask, you know, you know God is the architect. He created a perfect world. He put an umbrella around the atmosphere to protect us. And I think it's true to say, isn't it, that we are the ones who have punched holes in that umbrella. Sometimes that umbrella protects us, sometimes it doesn't. What about earthquakes? We are the ones who build our homes in earthquake zones. We know that lies on faulty ground today. We are the ones who put our homes near erupting volcanoes. Forest fires are often caused by negligence. What about landslides, flooding? See, our moral evil, primary evil, has caused natural disasters to multiply. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Genesis 3, 17. God places a curse on Adam due to Adam's sin. And Paul says in Romans, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of and glory of the children of God. And then the next verse says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, 
reflect that frustration, that bondage and decay of an earth groaning under sin's curse. Earthquakes and tsunamis are not moral agents and therefore cannot be morally evil. So the best, I guess, the best answer to the question, why did God create natural disasters, is that he didn't. Well, this has been a heavy subject today, but I trust that (laughs) the Lord has spoken. You know, let me just finish with one last story. And again, it's from Randy Alcorn's book. Story of a teenager who didn't want to be seen in public with her mother because her mother's arms were terribly, terribly disfigured, burnt, and scarred. And one day, the mother took her out shopping, and as they were paying for the goods, the clerk at the desk noticed the mother's arms and looked horrified and jumped back. And they got home, and the little girl said to her mother, I hate you. I don't want to be seen with you in public. It's so embarrassing. And she ran upstairs crying. Understandably hurt, the mother waited an hour before going up to the bedroom, to her daughter's room, to tell her for the first time what had happened to her arms. She said, when you were a baby, I woke up to a burning house. Your room was an inferno. Flames were everywhere. I could have gotten out of the front door, but I decided I'd rather die with you than leave you to die alone. I ran through the fire and wrapped my arms around you. Then I went back through the flames, my arms on fire. When I got outside on the lawn, the pain was agonizing. But when I looked at you, all I could do was rejoice that the flames hadn't touched you. Stunned, that girl looked at her mother through new eyes, through new eyes, weeping in shame and gratitude. She kissed her mother's hands and arms. I trust that this morning you will start to see this uh, issue of evil and suffering through new eyes. Not an easy subject, but I trust that today's foundation will help us build in the coming weeks when Raj comes and other elders come to speak on this subject. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you do reveal truth to us. Thank you for the way you've spoken to us this morning. Thank you that this Christian worldview that we have does deal adequately with this subject and offers us answers and offers us hope. And I pray that each and every one of us will desire to learn more from you, from your word, and go back to your word, to study your word, so that you might continue to speak truth into our hearts and into our minds. So, Father, we ask that throughout this coming week, help us to reflect how to, and, and put into practice what you're saying. Help us as we even wrestle with these subjects at the CG groups, the questions we have, that we will be able to help one another and encourage one another 
to persevere. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.